Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. And despite how god-awful I sound, I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you for joining my explorations of working lives. Yeah, sorry about the voice. Spring is in the air, and evidently so is a wicked cold. All good. It's not like I sounded smooth like Sam Cooke when I felt better. Never had a voice for radio. Always had a face for radio. But hey, thanks for all the kind words about the season 10 opener. I am still flabbergasted that we made it to season 10. Kind of love it. If you haven't yet listened to that conversation, the season 10 opener with the pianist Eric Pan, you really ought to. He shares uniquely beautiful, hard-earned perspectives on, on creativity and vulnerability. I cherish that conversation so much that, uh, well, along with podcast alum Brian Trahan, I recorded a composition about that podcast episode, and with all the vulnerability and humility required to do so, I shared that composition as a bonus episode. I kind of love it. It's a bit of a trip, but there's a there there, I think. Hey, as always, you're invited to support this podcast over at patreon.com slash for a living. The link is in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to all my other projects, including my weekly newsletter, The Saboteur. It's a portmanteau of Sabbath and Saboteur. Ain't I clever? You know who's wicked clever? My guest today. Karen Waples is a teacher, a consultant, and a textbook author. In fact, she just launched a textbook for the AP Comparative Government and Politics class that I've been teaching for almost 20 years. I met her a few times, always thought she was a cut above, always liked her a lot, and my students here in Berlin will be using her textbook beginning next year. So I thought I might seize this platform to take a deeper dive into how textbooks are written. Now, Karen and I explore what it's like to sit down and write a 500-page tome. We also discuss the challenges of writing for a broad and diverse audience. And we navigate the problem of writing an unbiased text about politics. Not easy. But Karen was super easy to talk to. I enjoyed every minute of our conversation. And you will too. So please, join me in conversation with Karen Waples. Karen Waples, welcome to the podcast. I'm sorry to you and to our listening audience that I sound so unwell. It's kind of gross, I know. But I feel better than I sound, and there is no way I was going to put this conversation off because I'm just so happy to have you here, and I'm excited to talk about this book with you. But before we do... Can I ask you to walk me along your professional path, like just to get a sense of the experiences that brought you to this book? Well, Daniel, thanks for having me as a guest on your podcast. Uh, My path to writing this book was a long and winding one. I went to college with the idea of becoming a teacher. And then I had a guidance counselor who said, don't be a teacher, you'll never find a job, and you'll never make any money. Yeah. 
And the second part of that was partly true. <laughs> so I was encouraged to go to law school and I had taken a law class and really enjoyed it. So I did go to law school and passed the bar and practiced for three years. And it just was not well suited for my personality. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And so I went back to school and decided to follow my initial passion, which was to go into teaching and got a secondary teaching credential and have taught in three different schools, an inner city school near Denver and then a suburban school. And now I'm at a private Catholic high school. And those have all been great jobs. I've loved them all. And along the way became an AP teacher. They're great courses for kids. They're wonderful classes to teach and eventually became an AP exam reader and moved up into leadership and became a consultant and so have the opportunity to train other teachers and eventually had an opportunity to write textbooks. And I'm so glad you wrote this book. Now, as the name might suggest, Comparative Government and Politics, Stories of the World, the world, right? It's an ambitious project. It's, it's a dense text, some 500 pages, lots of charts, graphs, images, infographics. It's unwieldy, really, but, but you took it on. So I got to ask you, like, what motivated you to write Stories of the World? Well, this is a great course. AP Comparative Government introduces kids to concepts that they'll use for their entire life. It provides a framework for looking at the world. And I'm hoping to make this course more accessible for both teachers and students. This, this is a pretty ambitious goal, but I'd like to grow the course. I think the numbers have been pretty steady over the years, and I just don't want kids to miss out on this opportunity. And so I was willing to take on this project because I believe the content helps kids frame the world in a new way. And I just think that's invaluable. As you know, like I share your, your passion for the course, right? It's one of those few courses that high school students can take, which really does kind of bring them around the world, right? We're talking about the United Kingdom and Russia and China, Iran, Nigeria, and Mexico. And students get to really engage wholeheartedly with the political culture and the political systems and the people, in a way, of those countries and you want more students to have access to this. And I really respect that. This course has done a lot for me. I'm sure it means a lot to you also. And what is it about this course exactly that makes you so motivated, so ambitious to want to share it with more students? I think it's the concepts, concepts like sovereignty and legitimacy and power help us frame what's going on in the world. And so I think for students, it helps them understand 
the world in which they live. It helps them understand their country. And it also might provide some framework that would be useful in their careers in the future. So I think these are important concepts for kids because they help them understand what's going on around them. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's what's so exciting about your book. It's concept heavy, but it also dives into those case studies, those six countries that I delineated just a moment ago. And you seem to balance the concepts and the countries. And I know we're going to probably end up talking about that. But before we do, I I should confess to you that I'm a bit of a, a sucker for an origin story. Every book has an origin story. All of us have our origin story. What's the origin story of stories of the world? Like, start from the very beginning. Well, I've always wanted to write a comparative government and politics book, and I think especially so since the College Board revised the curriculum. So it's it's always something I thought would be a lot of fun. And I have a pre-existing relationship with Bedford Freeman and Worth, who published my American government book. And so I reached out to them about writing this book, and we went back and forth for a long time to see if it makes any sense. It is a small market. And then at the height of the pandemic, when we were all locked up, um, I got an email asking me if I wanted to do this. And I had literally nothing to do. (laughs) And so the timing was perfect. And here we are. I remember those times. They weren't ideal. Can you give me a sense of what it felt like when that email showed up in your inbox? The subject line was comparative government book. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe we're going to get a chance to do this. So I couldn't wait to open it up. And I just had this sense of elation because I knew this was a project that had the potential to benefit kids and students and make this class really accessible. And as I mentioned, I had nothing to do. So it was exciting because now I had something to do and it was meaningful. And so it was a sense of elation and I would have gone out and celebrated, but of course there was nowhere to go. (laughs) So where do you start? with a project like this? Well, the first thing we needed to consider was if I was going to write the book from scratch or if we were going to work from something pre-existing. And there's an excellent college-level comparative government book written by Stephen Orvis and Carol Ann Drogas that we had the rights to. And so I took a look at that to see if that would be feasible and It was such a wonderful book. Now, of course, it's a college-level book, so it's not written for AP. It's not written for high school students. It was going to require a lot of revision, but the foundation was there. And so that's where we started, and uh, we were off and running once we had that plan. So did you end up having communication with Orvis and Drogas, and if so, like, What did those correspondences sound like? I have not had an opportunity to meet either of them or to correspond with them. I thank them in the book because they did provide a tremendous foundation for this textbook. But I had 
an up-close and personal relationship with their words. I spent a lot of time reading through that book, figuring out what we were going to use, how we were going to reorganize, and then, frankly, eliminating some really excellent content that wasn't appropriate or covered in the AP course. So I read the book, went through it carefully, um, and really developed a relationship with them through doing that. So I really want to get into, as you say, like how you restructured it and how you made it appropriate for your high school audience. But I just have this thought because Orvis and Drogus, their name's not on the cover. They're thanked. They get credits. But the cover of this tome prominently features your name, Karen Waples. And it dawns on me as I hear you talking about Orvis and Drogus that they're probably not the only ones, you know, inspiring you and, and working with you that, that the book is perhaps maybe some kind of a team effort. Would you be willing to talk about the team that supported you in bringing this book to life? Oh, I would love to, because they are amazing. So, One of the people I worked with was Professor Stan Luger from the University of Northern Colorado. I've known Stan as a colleague and a personal friend for decades, and he is a marvelous storyteller. So he wrote each of the stories that begins the chapters and wrote them in an engaging way so that kids could really get hooked into each chapter from the beginning. And I could not have written the book using this approach without him. We had four high school teachers who read through the entire book and provided feedback. We had five college professors who read the country chapters and provided specific feedback, both on tone and on content. And then at BFW, we have an amazing group of people. I have uh, an editor who is thoughtful, who has a great sense of humor and is able to provide excellent feedback without ever crushing my spirit. Um, <laughs> a development editor, uh, an executive project content manager who has an eagle eye for detail. And then Anne Heath, who was our executive program director who managed the entire project and all of the various people and all of the various teams that were working on this. And then in addition, we have a sales staff um, that gives us feedback on layout, that helps us understand the features that are going to be important to teachers and school districts. And then a lot of other folks that you might not necessarily think about, someone to do cover design, someone to do layout, someone to get permission for all of the artwork and graphs and charts. And so it's a large team. I am so fortunate to have been able to work with them. Your gratitude inspires me. And at the same time, I do have to ask, you know, writing by committee, working on projects like this, where you have as I'm hearing it, a half dozen, maybe a dozen people working on it. It can be the case that too many cooks can spoil this stew. This book has hardly been spoiled. Can you talk to me a little bit about the nature of that teamwork and how 
your team managed to keep everyone on board, looking forward, focused, eyes on the prize? Because that's a difficult thing to do. Well, I'm just really lucky to work for BFW because these are folks who have a lot of experience in high school publishing, and they are really good at what they do. And they're experts in a particular area. So everyone stays in their lane and we don't step on each other's toes. Everyone knows how to contribute to this project in a positive way. And they know how to work with authors and particularly authors who are high school teachers. So it's a well-oiled machine. It's an analogy I would use is it's kind of like New York City. You go there and you see all these people walking around and you think yeah. it shouldn't work, but somehow <laughs> it does. Yes. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I, I hope you don't mind my asking this, but I, I'm curious and so I'm going to. While I love the way you talk about teamwork, you know, your name's featured prominently on the cover of the book. And while it's a team effort, on some level, it's your book. Was it hard to navigate ego in light of your name being on the cover of the book? Not at all. Everybody was incredibly supportive. I think I would hope that everyone sees this as a team effort because it really is. So there really were no egos involved. And I want to make sure that my ego doesn't become involved just because my name is on the cover. It is my book, but it's also a team effort. And I need to remind myself of that every day. And I'm very grateful for it. I'm afraid this is merely confirming what I had already suspected, which is you're just like a better person than I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's really- I'm a very lucky person. It's very gracious of you, all the respect in the world. So you had mentioned a moment ago about the organization of the book and reorganizing the work of Orvis and Drogus. And I wonder if you could talk about how you organized the book and how you chose to organize it as you did. Sure. The question that comparative government teachers face is, do we want to teach this course thematically, which is the way the College Board curriculum is arranged, or do we want to use a country approach? And I think both approaches are valid, and every approach is the right approach for the right teacher. But for me, what made most sense was not having to pick between those approaches and using a hybrid approach where we could use the themes that are in the five college board units as chapters, individual chapters, and then intersperse them with country studies so that kids could take the concepts that they're learning and then apply them to specific countries. I had tried this approach a couple of years ago before I wrote the book and found it to be successful. And so that was the organizational scheme I decided to use. And then I took a risk with this, but the second thing I did was the first country study is Mexico, which is pretty unusual um, and is just based on my experience teaching. Most teachers or many teachers 
at least used to start with the United Kingdom. And I did that too. And at least for my students, it was really confusing. It was hard for them to wrap their heads around a parliamentary system right off the bat. And I thought, you know, most my students live in the United States. They're used to a presidential system. If I start with a presidential system and Mexico is relatively similar to the United States, that might ease them into the course and make it more accessible for them. And so I took a risk with that, but that's what I did because it's been successful with my own students. That's really clever. So really me this, you go from Mexico to what? What's the order of country studies as presented in the text? I go from Mexico to the United Kingdom and, and again, these are interspersed with thematic chapters. And then we study Russia. And my idea was that way kids would have experience with both a presidential, a parliamentary, and a semi-presidential system right off the bat. Gotcha. Then we study Nigeria, China, and Iran. And there's some controversy about putting Iran last because it's a difficult country and kids might be a little bit tired. But on the other hand, I think they need a pretty strong framework to understand the complexity of that government. And well, let's just put it this way, Daniel, I wouldn't want to start with it first. <laughs> yeah, literally nobody who teaches this class <laughs> begins with Iran. Like even teachers who teach in Iran are like, this is too complicated. There's no way we're starting in Iran. <laughs> right. So did you have to agonize in a way over the decision to present the case studies in that order? I thought about it a lot. And I thought about how I could explain it or justify it to teachers who had questions. But ultimately, there's no one right way to teach this course. And you just have to pick something and go with it. And if teachers want to move things around, move chapters around, they can do that and make the course their own and teach it in the order that makes the most sense for them and for their students. I love that. Now, you had mentioned that interspersed between these country studies are the five themes that the College Board prescribes for the teaching of the course. I guess I'm giving you a pop quiz here. What are these five themes? <laughs> we'll see if I pass. Yeah, yeah. So the first theme is sort of an introductory theme with basic vocabulary about government, things like regime, government, legitimacy, sovereignty, power, the framework for the course, the big concepts that kids will be pinning these countries on. And that's what the book starts with. I, I think we all start there because yeah. that is the, the building block for the course. The next unit is political institutions or what in American government we might call branches of government, followed by political culture and participation. Unit four is party and electoral systems and citizen organizations like interest groups and social movements. And then unit five is political economic change and development. And then that also includes some demographic information, like information about population changes. Right. So I'm curious here, is there one of those five themes 
that you found particularly challenging or particularly burdensome or otherwise maybe more difficult than the other ones when it came to sitting down and writing the book? Yes. I think economic change and development was kind of hard to navigate. And that's because this is not an economics course. And so, you know, they have a course for that, AP Micro and Macro Economics. So I didn't want to send kids too far into the weeds. But on the other hand, I wanted to make sure they knew enough about economic systems that they could understand the systems in the countries we study. And so I was walking a fine line between covering just enough and going into so much detail that I'd lose the kids. You know, I have to say that mostly out of fear of being wrong on my own podcast, I didn't hazard the guess, but I would have had that same sort of fear. That would have been the hardest one for me to write because there is this temptation because of our own curiosities, our own interests to kind of fall down the rabbit hole and falling down the rabbit hole of economics is uh, uncomfortable, let's say, right? Well, it would be for me uh, because I don't know that much about economics. So <laughs> that made it easy to make some decisions. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the unit that a lot of comparative government teachers struggle most with. And so I'm sure you put extra care into nailing that chapter down and making it accessible to, to all of your readers, in, including the instructors. Well, and I know this is a theme, but I had help. Right, right. You're good like that. Always appreciate the humility, the grace. We all love Karen Waples for that reason. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm really interested in in writing. I'm interested in process. And I, I kind of wonder how you structure your writing and your revision processes. Well... The writing process pretty much was structured for me by the publisher. So initially, we write a first draft. And so for me, that meant incorporating pieces of the Orvis and Drogas book, as well as some new writing, updated writing. And, and their book is excellent, and it's up to date. But you know, the minute something is published, it's basically out of date. So yeah. Structuring all of those chapters, figuring out the different sections that would be in manageable chunks for kids, and then placing that in a Word document to get us going. And then that becomes the first draft, and subsequent drafts become more complex and complicated. The first draft is just really a matter of getting everything out there and getting it to an editor, and then we refine from that. So in your writing process, once you have some words down on the page, is your team then invited to share comments, give direction? Yes, they are. And it's not really an invitation. It's a requirement. <laughs> thank goodness. Um, and so what I'll do is, if I'm not sure how to say something, I'll put it in a comment that says this doesn't sound right. Can you think of a better way to say it? Or does this sound kid-friendly? Is there a more clear way to state this? Should we move this paragraph up and get feedback that way? And then it works in reverse too. I'll get comments on the next draft with suggestions about 
what I should, or in some cases, what I need to change. You know, you've already very much established yourself as very much a team player, but I, I do want to ask, are there times where you're very pleased with something you have written and then you get a comment from someone you respect, part of the team, and they they disagree with the tone, the content, the language, and you have to navigate that. Can you talk a little bit about the collaborative nature of the writing process? Well, I think it's all about relationships, building a relationship with people you trust. And honestly, it never happened that I was upset with feedback. All of the feedback was thoughtful and meaningful and I agreed with all of it. So I, I, that might be hard to believe because it's a big book, but I had a great editor and if he changed something, it was always for the better. It's awesome to hear. It sounds like it was a pretty smooth process. Maybe not an easy process, but when you trust the people you're working with, it feels that much smoother, right? Yes. And I got to work with great people. Well, you're a great person. You deserve to work with great people. <laughs> Depends on the day, Daniel. <laughs> you, you know, you kind of alluded to this, um, but I hope I can get you to talk more about it. It's about like the language of the book. Because I have this question about how you could possibly write for your audience, right? This seems to me like it could be an overwhelming challenge, right? For on one hand, you know, your audience is so specific. It's high school students taking a class with a, a clearly delineated curriculum, right? The college board prescribes this curriculum. On the other hand, it's a diverse range of high school students. You know, your audience is high-flying, hyper-privileged students who have a dozen AP experiences under their belt. And it's also like underserved ninth graders who suffer from every disadvantage of American life. And you, <laughs> you, Karen, you need to speak to them all. And I hope I could get you to explore the work of doing that. Well, it's a lot of fun, actually, because writing a book is like talking directly to the kid. And because I've taught for a while, I sort of have a college level to teenager translator in my brain. <laughs> and so as I write, I always think about what's the most clear way I can say this without dumbing down the concept while keeping it college level. Just because it's college level, that doesn't mean we need to use big words. Um, there are ways of simplifying difficult concepts so that kids can understand them and still understand the nuance of the concept. And so that was in my mind every moment when I was writing. Um, in answer to your question, how do I reach every kid? I don't think I can. I would love to. And I wish I had that ability, but I know there are some kids who are going to struggle. Some of them are in my class. And I think that's where the teacher has to come in, by forming relationships, by working one-on-one -on -one with kids. There are things I can't do. And one of those things is 
replace that relationship that the teacher has with the struggling student. And that's where they can step in and help those kids understand what's going on. I get it. I love it. I totally appreciate the way you look at it. I guess I also wonder if you find it to be an overwhelming challenge to find the right language to speak to the broadest cross-section of students that you can? You know, I don't because the right language is usually fairly simple language. In those cases where I have struggled figuring out how to say something, and I know this is becoming the theme in the podcast, but I have help. I have a team of people who work in high school publishing, and I don't stress about it, and I don't get overwhelmed because I know it's not all on me. I can reach out and say, what's a better way to say this? And I'll get a good answer. So in order to speak to this broad audience that you and your team work assiduously to speak to, you also need to work assiduously to combat your biases, mm-hmm. right? Your book analyzes the governments of the United Kingdom, Russia, China, Iran, Nigeria, Mexico. And with the possible exception of the United Kingdom, these are deeply troubled regimes that trammel relentlessly on human rights. There are also regimes, I might add, that are more incompetent than malevolent. (laughs) But but yet, it's incumbent upon you to provide the most unbiased, academic, empirical assessment of these regimes. And I wonder if I could urge you to discuss the challenges of writing an unbiased textbook given the particular case studies that this book covers? I don't think you can go wrong with the facts. If you just, if assuming the research is solid and you feel confident in the facts, I think you write from that place without trying to add your opinion or telling kids how to think. Just this is what happened. Empirically, this is what happened. And that doesn't mean it's not going to upset someone. Something can be unbiased and still upset someone. Uh, But I take refuge in the facts. I also have had help. High school teachers reviewed this work. College professors reviewed this work. And one of the things they were specifically asked to look for is bias. And so it's good to get other sets of eyes on this. And that that was very, very helpful. It's, it's been less of an issue with this book than it was with American government stories of a nation. Um, I think perhaps unsurprisingly, it's been a bit more of an issue there. Yeah, I imagine so. And, you know, given the polarized nature of American political discourse, not just America, but that's what we're talking about here mostly, Given the culture wars as we're seeing them play out, I imagine that you had to do everything in your power to avoid any landmines that would have made the book unpalatable to a a certain subsection of the population. Would you be willing to share, like, are there any particular passages of the book that you had to give a little special attention to 
to make sure that the book was accessible to all people and that you wouldn't be accused of being biased? Well, for the American government book, um, you know, just being careful in teaching things like abortion policy, in teaching about things like school vouchers, because those are hot button issues. And the reality is, no matter how unbiased I am, people will complain. I guess the good news is we've had about an even number of complaints from liberals and conservatives. So <laughs> I think that's good. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be biased because it's not my job to be biased. It's not my job to tell kids what to think. And I know that. Um, Honestly, Daniel, I also don't want to be biased because I want to sell books. And <laughs> if I'm cutting out a big swath of the population, that's not going to happen. So that wouldn't even be in my self-interest. And I'll tell you, uh, those complaints really hurt. They, they hit close to home because ultimately they're an attack on my integrity. And that doesn't feel very good. So you have every incentive to do whatever is in your power to minimize or frankly eliminate bias for, for all of the reasons you stated, right? Like the Benjamins demand it. You don't want to be uh, accosted or insulted. And it seems to be, as I see it, like in your nature to want to make this book accessible to everyone, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying. And so I would just hope that folks realize that I'm trying to do my best. Yeah, I totally appreciate that. And and I hear it and it rings true to me. I want to go back in the conversation because you had just mentioned something really quickly and I'm really interested in it. And so I hope I can get you to talk about it. What exactly is the process of choosing images and infographics and charts and tables to incorporate into this book? Oh my gosh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so I think about what would enhance students' understanding. And then I look at some of the, I guess, obvious sources. I don't know, a chart from the World Bank or from Freedom House or from Transparency International. Images of world leaders, those are relatively easy to find with a simple Google search. If I want a charter graph, uh, sometimes it just makes the most sense to provide the data and then we'll have someone draw it, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, so that's another way of getting visuals. And then sometimes they're problematic. I'll want to use a picture and we'll find out the resolution isn't clear enough or we can't get permissions. But my editor's really good about coming back to me and giving me second and third choices so, so we have something to work with. It's one of the most fun parts of the book because I want something that's really eye-catching but that also accurately represents culture. And it's just really fun to look for those. Do you ever suffer from what I want to call decision fatigue in the effort to find infographics and images and charts and tables that, that pop? You know, I really don't because if I find something we like and it doesn't look exactly right, we can probably redraw it. The good news is I'm not in charge of making those things pop, which is really good <laughs> news because I would be terrible at it. But 
we have really talented folks who know how to make that happen. So I'm lucky because we have the resources to do that. So I've seen a little bit of the book and I really think you all did a great job with the infographics, charts, tables, images. And I've also noticed that the book features a lot of formative assessments. You know, those in the know, know well that this is in and of itself, something of a Pandora's box. But I'd like to crack the box open if only for a second, can we explore your process of writing formative assessments for the book? Sure. Um, I think they're really important because they help check student understanding along the way. And so I'm trying to walk a line in formative assessments. I want them to be similar to what kids will encounter on an AP exam. And at the same time, I want them to be used as a way of demonstrating students' knowledge of the section that they just read. So it's a reading comprehension and content comprehension exercise as well. And so they have to be a little bit narrower than they might be on the AP exam. And so that's a little bit of a line to walk, but I'm lucky I have the section right in front of me, so I usually know what to write about. I know you have a lot of experience with this, but. What's the hard part about writing formative assessments that are going to be published in the book? The hardest part is at the beginning of the book because kids don't know anything yet. And before they've studied (laughs) countries, you can't really ask them to compare countries because they haven't learned anything yet. And so it's really hard to write those earlier ones. As you go through the book, it gets much easier because kids have studied concepts and countries and we can start to tie all of that together. But they really are, I'll be honest with you, they're pretty basic in the beginning. Yeah, I imagine so. Do you enjoy writing formative assessments? I do. I think it's fun and challenging at the same time. It's a it's a good way to zero in on what kids really need to know and kind of block out the noise. Yeah, I like the way you look at that. Totally spot on. It, it doesn't surprise me at all. Speaking of surprises... I would imagine that even though you've done this before, right? You wrote the AP U.S. government textbook. That in studying these six countries and walking through these five themes and finding the right language with which to express all of this, that you stumbled into a couple surprises along the way. Would you be willing to share a thing or two that surprised you? in the process of developing this book? You know, there weren't many surprises in the process of developing this book. I think most of my surprises came with the first book. Um, I was a new author and I didn't have a good handle on how the process worked. Like I didn't know that I would be writing a first draft of chapter 10 at the same time I was looking at a third draft of chapter one and a second draft of chapter six. So I had kind of envisioned myself writing a book, you know, sitting home in my bunny slippers with my cat on my lap, which is, (laughs) by the way, a very accurate depiction of what happens. Um, And, you know, moving in a linear fashion through the book. And I didn't realize how many pieces I would have to juggle. And so that was the biggest surprise. And it happened with the first book. So 
I was more ready for it when I got to the second book. Karen, I have to tell you that I would find that to be more than surprising. I would find like the process of juggling chapters and writing in a nonlinear manner to be terribly frustrating. Is it? No, it, it really isn't. You have to manage your time well. You have to, and the people at BFW were really good at letting me know when different pieces were going to be arriving. So that helped a lot with time management. And then the second thing is, it doesn't get boring. I'm not working on the same chapter at once. I'm revisiting early chapters at the same time I'm writing something new. And that provides some diversity in my workday. And I like that. Yeah, now that you frame it that way, I imagine it thus to be probably more frustrating if you had to do it in a linear manner. It would be for me. Yeah, probably me too, now that you got me thinking of it that way. Okay, so that's not so frustrating, but there's got to be some frustration in it. If only because, you know, it's difficult content and you're trying to write to a broad audience and you're navigating, albeit a wonderful team, but the team. What are the frustrating parts of writing a book like this? And, and, and how did you grapple with some of that frustration? Sometimes it's hard to make sure information is accurate, uh, especially because we're dealing with six different countries. And so things like finding English language sources can be kind of frustrating or reading a country's constitution and being more confused after I've read it than I was before I started or, you know, not getting a clear answer or reading journals that say opposite things. And the way I grapple with that frustration is first reach out to an expert. And I'm so lucky that we had folks on board who I could even just send a text and say, hey, I'm finding different things here. What's the answer? And then ultimately, one way to grapple with that frustration is to realize that sometimes I'm just going to have to say, this process is unclear. I'm just going to have to say that straight up in the book because it's not clear and I don't have all the answers. And just to realize that sometimes that's the best you can do. So you bring your humility to it and you just tell the reader that this is unclear. It's a riddle wrapped inside, a mystery wrapped inside an enigma. What's that Churchill quote about Moscow? Am I getting it right? I think that might be it. And you know, it's the same thing we have to do in class, Daniel. If you're a comparative government teacher, you have to get used to saying, I don't know, a lot. Yeah, I mean, I remember. So I started teaching this class in 2005. I had been teaching for a half a dozen years and I up and moved to Barcelona. And so I was living in new country, new language, teaching a number of classes that I had never taught before, including for the first time, AP Comparative Government, which had just been redesigned. And I remember really, you know, wanting to prove myself at this school right? Wanting to be seen as a valuable, perhaps even cherished member of the school community and daily running up against kind of like ego issues because, you know, nobody ever taught me about Nigerian politics or Iranian politics and on and on. 
I guess I wonder how you grapple with the totality of it. There's so much that you are expected to master. How do you navigate that in light of the fact that your name's on the book and you got to put this thing out in the world? Well, I did the best I could to find as much information as I could and to fact check it. And I've got a great team. And when I get questions and I don't know the answer, the answer can be, I don't know. Yeah. And it's the same in my class. I say, I don't know a lot. And, you know, it used to be I had a notepad and I took notes and looked everything up and came back to class the next day with the answer. A lot of times kids had forgotten they'd asked the question, but I came (laughs) back with the answer. And now it's really easy. It's just like, take out your cell phone and we're going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. I totally appreciate that. And I have to confess, I, I have a question, but I'm afraid it's about your feelings. And then I hope you don't mind. It dawns on me that I'm wondering throughout this conversation, like what it might feel like to have this book out in the world and in the hands of students. Well, as an author, I get a few free copies of the textbook. And so when the box arrived and I opened it up and the cover is so beautiful, the cover designer did an amazing job. I was ecstatic. I've got to tell you, it feels great to have it out there in the world because I'm, I'm very proud of it. You should be. Thank you. Hey, I got a small little question here. What do you wish that more students knew about the textbooks that are, dare I say, thrust upon them? I wish they knew that, this is going to sound silly, but it's worth reading them. We're not assigning them because we're mean. We're not assigning them because we're trying to load them down. We're assigning these textbooks because they contain a level of detail that we cannot possibly cover in a single class period. Or if we did, there wouldn't be any time left to do exciting and fun and engaging lessons. And so I wish they understood that there are some things that they can only learn through reading. Karen, I totally feel that. And I might confess to you that I have what I might call a complicated relationship with textbooks. Sometimes I fear they take the sport out of learning. I rely on them more in some classes than others. Most of my classes, I don't have a textbook at all. But I truly believe that for this particular course, uh, a textbook is utterly indispensable. And you're right. It is critically important for students, if they want to have a class where they can engage with one another, to lean into the textbook, especially a well-researched book like this one that's been created by a team of people who, who, are, who are experts and who genuinely care that students learn the stories of the world, right? I'm totally supportive of your project. Like, I know the book is hot off the presses, so this might not be the right time to ask. But while I got you here, I'll confess, I do wonder, is there anything you hope to change in forthcoming editions? 
I think just the obvious, which is keeping up with changing world events. You know, a textbook is really a snapshot in a particular time frame. I'm happy with the organization and the AP tips and the assessments, but this book's going to keep me on my toes because I will need to keep up with what's going on. And that's going to be the biggest challenge. I kind of hope that the next edition that comes out, there's uh, no Vladimir Putin in power. And I'll be interested (laughs) to see how in the most unbiased way possible you uh, treat his farewell to the Russian people, however it might happen. Well, stay tuned. I will stay tuned and I will keep learning. And I know that you are totally and completely a lifelong learner. And I, I wonder what the most important lessons are that you learned uh, about textbook writing when writing stories of the world? I think in writing both books, uh, I knew about this lesson, but the importance of time management, setting deadlines and sticking to them, and at the same time of pacing myself, because I'm not a person who can write eight hours a day. I, I mean, I could, but those last two hours, what I wrote wouldn't make any sense. So I learned a lot about just pacing myself and time management so that I could stay on top of things. I think a writing project like this can get away from you really quickly if you're not paying attention to what you're doing. That's really interesting to me. How do you kind of grapple with the, the, the feelings of ambition and kind of wanting to get it done, whether it means a chapter or a formative assessment, and the, the desire to check it off the list, if you will? How do you balance your desire to accomplish the thing with your knowledge that you need to be patient and methodical and managed? I think the main thing is to quit when you start to feel fatigued because you're not doing anybody any good otherwise. Yeah. Kind of just being honest with yourself, checking in. Yeah. Yeah. It's good advice. It's sound advice. It's an important lesson and that should be enough, but I hope you might help me to drive the train into the station here. Karen, You're interested in stories. You're so deeply interested in stories that you wrote a text called Stories of the World. And I too am deeply interested in stories. So I was hoping I could get you to tell the story of one triumph and one failure in the development of this textbook. Well, the triumph is easy. My students are reading it. Yes. And they like it, or at least they tell me they like it. I'm in charge of their grades, so <laughs> got to keep that in mind. But yeah, yeah. Um, they are reading it, and it's going well. They're reading it and understanding it. And so I'm so lucky that I'm still in the classroom because I have that experience. So that by far is the triumph. Um, the failure, and this is a little thing. I tried something and it just fell flat. On the teacher's edition, I was hoping to include some lesson plans 
for each of the chapters because there's not much out there. And this is kind of a, a tough class to teach. And I threw it out there. We offered to pay folks to do that. And I was willing to revise the lesson plans. And there were a lot of crickets chirping after that <laughs> offer. It just didn't go anywhere. And so maybe in the next edition, we'll be able to provide that. I think I hit teachers when they were feeling really stretched and that was poor timing on my part, but that's something I'd like to see in the future. I had high hopes for it and it just didn't go anywhere, at least not this time around. Yeah. The timing of it probably has something to do with it. And uh, yeah, I can see you coming back around soon enough with lesson plans for teachers. I'll tell you, there's a bunch of teachers that would definitely appreciate that. There's a market for what you're talking about for sure. Right. I think so. I just like to help people out because this can be kind of a tough course to teach. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you could help me out by recommending to our listeners, you know, something that illustrates or somehow influenced your writing of this book. It could be anything. The floor is yours. Um. I'm a runner, not a very good runner. I'm one of those people in 5Ks when people pass me, I'm like, have a good run. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm an avid runner and I run a lot. Yeah. And running helped me solve so many quandaries I had with this book. If I was mulling something over, it felt so good to get out and go for a run. And it's everything that writing is not. It's outdoors and it's activity and you don't have to think if you don't want to. And running saved many, many passages in this book. Yeah, I'll bet. That is awesome. I'm glad you're running. And I'm so glad that you walked me through the process of writing this book. Thank you for sharing your stories with me. Thank you for sharing with all of us stories of the world. I will be using your text beginning next year. I'll be thinking of you fondly. Karen Waples, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was a blast. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Karen Waples. I really like Karen Waples. She's fantastic. You can find links to Karen's work in the show notes of this episode. And while you're there, you can take out a free subscription to my weekly newsletter. And of course, if for a living means something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash for a living. It's in the show notes. And for me, I'll be back in just a couple weeks, probably sounding a lot better than this. I'll be talking to a rabbi. Oh, and his son. I got a co-host on that one. Had a lot of fun. Lots going on over here. Spring is in the air. Please take care. And I'll catch you in two weeks' time.